Welcome to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Good afternoon, Joe Hall here with Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. On today's show, we're going to delve into the archives of the program and look back at a chat with one of Melbourne's most powerful men. He's covered crime for countless years and formed the basis of the hit series Underbelly. As we start the chat with John Sylvester, I begin asking about another great Australian we've featured on the program, Frank Costa. Frank's one of, uh, one of Australia's most interesting men and the reason I wanted to talk to him was um, about crime because... Uh, he was one of the few people who actually took on the mafia and, if you like, won. Uh, people wonder about the mafia and what does it matter because we just watch it on telly, it doesn't affect us. Well, it did because it had dominated the fruit and vegetable market so much so that uh, Coles unwittingly were paying a surcharge to the Honoured Society of 50 cents a case. Now, that was costing Coles 5 to $6 million a year. And one of the executives saw that they were paying way too much for this and sent one of their own, one of his juniors in to try and work it out. That fellow was threatened several times and ultimately was shot at his own home. So Coles, uh, through Solly Lou and Lindsay Fox, approached Frank and said, we want you to take over the buying, so to, to vault the whole industry as such and go directly to the markets. And he said, naively, he took it on. And uh, it resulted in... A number of threats, uh, people got bashed, um, his business was sabotaged and at one stage his brother came back with a, a message and said, uh, Frank, you can get a million dollars a year forever if you leave it the same way or the alternative is a bullet. So Frank, who's not mafia connected but obviously watched all the movies, uh, sent his brother back with the message, you touch a hair on my head or any of my family and you'll get double." He said later it was a total bluff, but it worked, <laughs> so they, they stopped. So he did that, and when he did the same thing for Woolworths, they came back and said uh, he found out that there was a contract put on him which had to be filled in 21 days, and uh, he had a, a rough, tough partner in the in the trucking business who went to the fellow who put the contract out and virtually walked in and shut the door and said, look, we're bigger than you are, and we've got more money, so the contract I'm going to take on you is open-ended if anything happens to Frank. So the contract against Costa was withdrawn and uh, Frank said it was just as well he lived in Geelong at that time. It was serious business. I mean, it went right back to the market murders of 63 and 64 and uh, an expert called John T. Cusack from America came out and wrote a report which prophesied what would happen within the markets. It's much cleaner now. Uh, largely due to people like Frank Costa. Mm. He was a guest on our show and he did touch on that episode. Um, but he, you know, although he's the most wonderful, soft, gentle man, he's also not a man to be messed with. Well, you don't get to run a, or to own a billion-dollar business <laughs> um, without having a bit of spine, which he showed then. But uh, it's good for me to write a story when the good guys win. Um after more than 35 years, which is not a short amount of time in crime reporting, what keeps it um, motivating for you? Because it's like going to the opening of a gangster movie nearly every day. Like, I mean, like any job, you can have your bad days or boring days, but the fact of the matter is purely through accident, I've had one of the best seats in the house in you know, some fairly amazing events that have happened. 
And I told the young reporters during the gangland war, I, I don't care whether you're going to be foreign correspondents or go to Canberra, you will always reflect on that time when uh, we had gangsters who were household names, people known by their first names. Everyone knew Tony was Tony Mockbell or Carl was Carl Williams. And Mick is Mick Getter, who still is stopped in the street and asked for autographs and um, selfies. And he says, you know what, I always do it because you never know who's going to be on a jury. <laughs> of course. I sat behind him at the footy, actually, um, last year, Anzac Day, I think, and I couldn't see anything. He's enormous. <laughs> well, he, uh, he was a heavyweight boxer, and uh, when he was charged with the murder of Andrew Veneman, he was probably around 130 kilos, and he spent 14 months in maximum security, and he came out looking magnificent. He was back to his fighting weight of about 100 kilos. So um, I don't know whether anyone will ever offer it as a diet, but 14 months in maximum security. <laughs> don't think too many people will be taking that one up. <laughs> How do you find um, the state of crime in Victoria these days? Uh, crime in my time has changed. When we, not, You shouldn't glamorise any of them, but if you go back to the, to the late 70s, the... The, the gangsters who were the sort of uh, best known were stick-up men. Now, by nature, they're violent, but the good ones um, planned their raids like um, like the SAS. Uh, they had it down to a fine art, and you take things like the bookie robbery, they're able to get in and out without unnecessary violence and get millions. But the security system, banks... I mean, remember, in those days, you were paid in cash, so there were armoured cars that would arrive at uh, Channel 9 or, or at the Sun and all this money would come out. So they were easy targets. So that went. And that's now been replaced, of course, by drugs. And the, the money that people can make through drugs in a short period of time. Now, Carl Williams was an unemployed supermarket shelf stacker. And at one point, he was uh, at a turnover of $100,000 a month. Um, Tony Mockbell and his group, the company, was purported to have had a turnover of $400 million. The issue being this, when these people um, are arrested and convicted, and people like me uh, have them on page one, the issue is, of course, that the price and purity of drugs does not change on the street, which indicates the massive amount that is there. And the iron law of crime is where there is a demand, there will be a supply. Join us after this song as we go back to the early years for John Sylvester. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives on my MP for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Joe Hall here with Sly of the Underworld, John Sylvester. John, how do you like that nickname, Sly of the Underworld? It began because uh, Ross Stevenson... was on uh, 3RRR. Now, of course, he's the high-rating breakfast announcer on 3AW. But uh, he was a lawyer. And in those days, you couldn't use your real name as a lawyer because it was seen as advertising in the media. So he had a number of uh, sort of guests that would come on. And um, they all had to have an underplume. So the real estate agent was the man in the tree and there was a lunch a lot and so on. And when it came to me, um, a policeman had called me Sly simply because of Sylvester Stallone, Sly Stallone, <laughs> of which I don't think there's any similarities between <laughs> Rocky Balboa and me. But um, So that's what was used, and it stuck. 
And you don't mind it? No, it's good fun. <laughs> the trouble, of course, with going on radio was I always thought I was fairly anonymous. and so. But your voice gets recognised. So if I was ringing up, trying to be a secret squirrel and ring a policeman, you'd ring up and just say, oh, such and such there, and the bloke go, oh, oh, it's sly on the phone because they'd, <laughs> they'd pick the voice. <laughs> you do have quite a distinctive voice. Um, your father was a policeman. Did that um, arouse your interest in crime or...? Who knows? I remember as a as a small kid being asked, what do you want to do? And I said, a policeman, like anybody else, it could have been a fireman, but my father, I remember him just saying, no, you bloody well will not. And sort of that went out of it. And like you, Joe, I'm sure you do some work with um, young students in the media, and it's fantastic and energising to see all these young people with their eyes just looking at you saying, I'd kill you stone dead for your job. Mm-hmm. You know, they desperately want... Um, to make their mark in the media. And I was certainly not one of them. And I think, um, you know, we put a lot of pressure on our kids to make career decisions because I was at uni um, doing nothing but drinking beer and sleeping in and um, my old man in the last year was saying, what do you want to do? And I had no idea. What were you studying? um, Drinking beer and sleeping in. (laughs) No, it was um, arts, there was a bit of politics, a bit of criminology. But I really didn't have any idea and it was... Mick Miller's wife, Beverly, Mick being then an assistant commissioner, and Beverly Miller said, you should be a journalist because you've got an opinion on everything, which was a nice way of saying you're an absolute smart aleck full of yourself. <laughs> so I thought, beauty, that's a job I'll never get, but it'll keep my old man off my back. So I sent a couple of smart aleck letters out to different organisations, and to my surprise, I got an interview with the Herald and Weekly Times. The first interview, I thought, went pretty well. The second one. How old were you? Oh, 20, mm. 21, something like that. Last year at uni. And the second interview in front of a panel of three um, ended up in virtually a stand-up blue. Um, it went very, very badly, I thought. Anyway, I stormed out and nearly turned around and said, get stuffed, but I didn't. Two weeks later, I got a phone call, and it was the bloke I'd been bluing with. And he said, you've got the job. Where would you like to work, the Herald or the Sun? And I said, uh, the Herald. And he said, good, you start on the sun on Monday. So, <laughs> and a thousand years later, I found out that when my old man came back from the war and he, he was English, he um, was bludging around and his old man said, you've got to go and get a job. So he saw an ad for the Metropolitan Police and thought, you beauty, I'll never get that. So he put in for that. And when he arrived at the interview, there were all these big hulking men there and he was quite skinny. He thought, oh, fantastic. I won't get it, but he did, <laughs> and he ended up an assistant commissioner. So it just goes to show that I don't think we need to be driving some message into 15-year-olds that they should know what they want to be because, frankly, we all make it up as we go along. Mm. Uh, tell me about your documentary series you made, Trigger Point. Trigger Point um, was uh, an ABC series which was done independently by Terry Carline. At, uh, it was an interesting journey for me because... One, I haven't got a head for television, but it it was a story about police shootings. And I think what the ABC expected was a very worthy um, story, which involved heavily the relatives of, of people who'd been shot by police who would say, you know, my son didn't deserve to be shot, that sort of thing. Now, that is a very worthy story and often told. But having one of the you know only advantages of getting old is you've got longevity, um, in a particular area and I've known a lot of police involved in police shootings and 
virtually every one of them has been very, very badly damaged psychologically. So we decided to try and do it through the eyes of police. And I'd done a book on police shootings many years ago and had a lot of the videos that had been uh, used in the inquest because in those days police would actually reconstruct what happened in front of the camera. So we had the actual, like, hours after police had shot someone dead, the actual shooter reconstructed for the homicide squad. So we would go and revisit these people and see how they were 20, 25 years down the track. And I remember one was Ray Watson. Ray's a lovely big bear of a man, very funny, very intelligent. And I was talking to him about this documentary and I'd almost forgotten he'd been involved in a fatal shooting. And he said, yeah, me too. And he talked about it. So we went and saw these people and goodness knows how you do live television because A, I wouldn't work off a script which meant every time I stuffed it up um, I could never just pick it up and do it again and B, the amount of times um, something would go wrong. We had Ray Watson in a park talking about the terrible events of his life when the um, senior citizens next door decided to do their aerobics. So in the background, you hear the song YMCA. <laughs> oh, no. Also, being a rank amateur at this, I um, was asked to do some voiceover work and uh, sort of arrived without breakfast and um, had the worst attack of stomach rumbles in the history of the world. And the sound man, the sound man halfway through said, if someone doesn't get this bloke a, a biscuit... <laughs> I'm going to punch him in the mouth. (laughs) Hilarious. Stay with us. Up next, we'll chat Underbelly with John Sylvester. Also, check the program out on Twitter at Great OzLives. You can pass on your feedback or suggest any great Australians you'd like to hear interviewed. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives on my MP. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're with Great Australian Lives. I'm Joe Hall and I'm chatting to the ages John Sylvester. I'd like to talk about Underbelly soon, John, but just if we could briefly go back to your documentary series, Trigger Point. There were so many, or there seems to be have been a lot more police shootings in the 80s. Yeah, what... what they were pretty... Um, they weren't rare, were they? What happened was we had uh, events such as... Uh, uh, Mad Max shot a number of police. We had the Russell Street bombing and then we had Walsh Street. So quite understandably, senior police thought we're going down the American path. So they, tr- you know, where everyone shoots everyone. So they used a lot of American training, including a video called Your Move Sergeant. At the same time, we had um, a, a, a great number of recruits coming in because they were increasing police numbers. So a lot of these people came out with that training and we had... A number of shootings and um, it was only after a police review and a major inquest that they they termed it the culture of bravery police running into a situation and trying to take control so under project beacon it became a rule your operation will be judged on the safety of the public police and the suspect so they'd wait people out they would do different things and it worked very well but the consequences of those days just continue. There was the Russell Street bombing and a policeman by the name of Mark Wiley was involved in a raiding party looking for one of the suspects, Peter Reid. And he arrived and he was shotgun trained but he had never used this particular brand of shotgun. So his training consisted of 
cocking it and uncocking it in the in the darkened car park of the Nutterwooding police station. They didn't have enough ballistic vests. So he went in looking for a potentially armed offender without a vest. He came in last, but as you can imagine, he goes straight into the bedroom and there's the offender with a gun. Um, so there's a shootout and Mark is shot straight through the body, in one end and out the other end of his ski parker. He's in such shock, he opens the parker and the bullet falls out. And he goes, mark that as an exhibit. He's breathing slow as he lays down. He may well have died, but it's typical of the black humour of police that while he's laying there, another member starts fidgeting with his back pocket and pulls his wallet out. Now, probably to get identification next of kin or something, but Mark opens his eyes and says, what are you doing? And he says, mate, if you die, we're going to have to put some money on the bar, so it may as well be yours. Which made him laugh, because only coppers had talked that way. So he's taken to hospital, and um, they have to do massive internal um, repair work, and the surgeon, when he recovers, comes out and says, one, I've got one question for you. What did you have for dinner? And he said, I had a Sri Lankan curry. And he said, that'd explain it. We had to take about a 1,000 sesame seeds out of you. And we kept on finding more when we wanted to close you up. So if you're going to get shot, <laughs> don't have a Sri Lankan curry. <laughs> Now, Mark suffered from depression um, from those. He recovered physically, a very smart man, and he cooperated with the documentary. And he told me that um, he watched the documentary with his son, and his son basically held his hand during the whole thing because it gave the son a chance to, to actually hear the truth that maybe grown men can't tell their kids. And at the end of it, Mark went up to his bed um, and his son came up and turned on his favourite music and just lay with him. And Mark said that was one of his um, great moments. But some weeks later, not related to the series, I mean, Mark took his own life. And it's one of the hidden black marks in policing is the uh, amount of suicides and the amount of depression um, that these people suffer. And it can be one incident, it can be a thousand incidents. And uh, of all the police in recent years who've taken their own lives, not one sought counselling because of the fear that if you go to the counselling system, um, they're going to say, well, you're not fit uh, operationally, therefore, because we don't want you with a firearm. Mm. And so these people conceal it. It's a massive problem. And I know that um, former Chief Commissioner Ken Lay was right onto it. And there's been some major inquiries, including Beyond Blue getting involved because... Um, the mental health issue for first responders, but particularly police, is something that we, we're just not dealing with. Mm. Um, let's talk about Underbelly. What um, prompted you write that? Uh, underbelly. Well, what happened is that uh, colleague Andrew Rule and myself would put our little crime stories together into books called Underbelly. And um, it, was, uh, it was Eddie Maguire, when he was at nine, who... And being of Melbourne, he'd read these books and he'd go, this, this is a, a television series. Now, those books tended to be across the board, but as the underworld war evolved, they evolved as well and became much more specific into those cases. And I, I can't tell you how many coffees we had with Eddie. Um, and he would get people down from Sydney and uh, they'd thinly smile because they wanted to suck up to a star and they wouldn't have a clue what he was talking about. And they'd <laughs> nod and they'd go, this is great. But they always saw it from the prison of their own experience, was Blue Heelers and the drama where 
the police were the stars. And um, it was only, of course, when Eddie became the boss. He said, what's happened with this underbelly thing? And he claims that he dusted off a file somewhere and said, You're not, you don't get this. We're making it. It's not a matter of, of if, it's when. So that put them into a flat spin and they got um, Screen Time involved. And Screen Time was an ex- external production company. And those, those people got it. And the first series, and I won't talk about the others, but the first series was very good. Not totally accurate but for, for reasons, for legitimate drama reasons. But, um, yeah, it was quite, you know, it was a relief to see that it was somewhat accurate. Did you expect it to be the juggernaut it ended up being? <laughs> no. I mean, um, the, the television series fed the books and the books fed the television series. But um, Melbourne, it's just a massive village. And if I go out and give a speech around Essendon, um, there'll be elderly ladies who'll come up and say, I knew that Jason Moran when he was a boy and I knew he was after mischief. And, uh, you know, I knew Judy Moran or I knew Des. And I very rarely do I give a speech anywhere without someone coming and telling me something new about some of these colourful characters. And you're right, they did, they were so famous, weren't they? They were household names and with one name. Which is the key, if you're known by one name. And, and you know, they, they are. They, um, they became somewhat celebrities, but they... Um, How many of them did you meet? Did you meet... Look, the funny thing is, and this is, again, um, the advantage of of longevity. I can't recall many times where I've actively gone out to to try and establish a relationship, if you like. More often than not, they'd contact me. And that's, um, again, because they'd probably known the name because they'd been around the place Mm. for a long time. That's not any special talent. It's just being around for a long time. And, of course, in the case of Jason and people like that, I'd done stories on, on the Canes. Uh, of which he was married into the same family. Not that Jason was a fan because he threatened to bite my nose off, but I've got a nose and he's not here, so. <laughs> You're a winner, winner. <laughs> John, after this, I want to discuss the rest of your world. Stick around, there's plenty more to come on Great Australian Lives with John Sylvester for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Joe Hall here with the Ages Chief Crime Columnist, John Sylvester. 80 years ago, Tobin Brothers Funerals was founded by brothers Leo, Fonts, Thomas and Kevin. The company flourished due to the brothers' vision, hard work and diverse strengths and interests. But the first Tobin Brothers branch opened in North Melbourne and these days is home to their head office and chapel. Today, Tobin Brothers Funerals is still owned by the Tobin family and is a trusted household name with 22 locations and over 190 trained professionals. Find out more at tobinbrothers.com.au. John, you won the Walkley Award, I think I was there, for Best Use of Medium in 2004. Did that mean a lot to you? Look, you know, awards... Awards mean a lot to you when you don't have them. You feel that all the judges are swines. Um, but that, yeah, it was. And it was a team effort too. Um, probably the radio thing helps how I was able to, you know, I'm sort of comfortable talking into a microphone. And um, uh, we put that together. And, of course, uh, you know, the Walkleys is 
a major event in our in our profession. Mm. So um, again, that's longevity. I'd been there a long time, so I I sort of knew the characters, and I I hope was able to put some of the stuff in perspective. Would you say that's kind of a highlight for you, or would it be underbelly? What what what? Where would you put that, Walkley? Oh. Uh, I won the Graham Perkins Journalist of the Year, which is sort of for a body of work, which I, 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 I'm grateful for. Um, the underbelly thing, I don't think about um, as such because it's just ridiculous. It's winning Tats Lotto. Are you proud of winning Tats Lotto? No, your numbers came up. I was, I was here and had experience and these amazing events unfolded around you. And I will say to a fiction writer, um, I pity you because you've got to work so hard to make your stuff believable. Half the stuff we wrote was unbelievable. I mean, for goodness sake, if you were if you were writing some crime novel and you you had your man, which is Tony Mockbell in this case, um, you know, living in a place at the back of Bonnie Doon and getting delivered a giant Tupperware container of his mother's tabbouleh while he's on the run, then um, buying a, a boat for three hundred forty thousand dollars. Having it go across the country on a on a long hauler, getting a Greek crew, <laughs> and then taking it to Athens, and the only CD on the boat was Barry White's greatest hits. <laughs> I mean, fair income. No one would believe you. That's Alison. Get into the Betty Ford Clinic and dry out and try again another time. And then when, once you got to Athens, and the bad wig, and <laughs> and then you've got the bad wig, and you've and uh, you know you've got Jim Coghlan, the the investigator over there getting a phone call and it's a female saying it's Christine Nixon I wish you the best of luck and he thinks it's a trick from Piranha so he tells her to go and get stuffed and then puts the phone down and goes oops that voice sounded familiar and the next phone call is saying I am Christine Nixon so these yeah. these sort of things all they were very fanciful weren't they I mean the whole but you know all all of those events there you know the ridic- to have a uh, in a really sexy lawyer um, and her her pet is a snake you know, called Shivers after Shivers Regal, you know, and she's known as the hyphen with a python. I mean, <laughs> no one would believe it, but it actually happened. Yes. Um, so, look, in my medium, um, there's been so many changes in television um, in terms of when I started, we were shooting some stories on film and there were only a few tape cameras as such. Now we can go live in a heartbeat to anywhere in the world. In terms of newspaper journalism, what what's changed? What has changed in that regard? F- funnily enough, some things are reverting to type in that the um, deadlines became earlier and earlier. We lost the Herald. We had the capacity when I started, and I was at the tail of it, of people who were able to pick up a phone and dictate from their notes a beautiful feature or a news story from public telephones. And we had subs who could sub in a, in a heartbeat. Now, what's happened now is because of the internet, that's those same skills are there, the capacity to get the story now. No longer can you say, oh, I missed the deadline because of the online world. The challenge for all of us is with social media to uh, maintain our, our standards because every knucklehead can blog but the fact of the matter is when big things happen you want to go to channel nine the abc the age the herald sun 
I mean, if some big event happened in, in London now, I'd be checking the BBC. Not some bloke in a string vest in Scunthorpe, what he has to think about it. So, and what we're finding, I mean, I like the, the terrible murder of Jill Maher, I think is a prime example, that there was a massive amount of social media activity, but they had to come to orthodox media to get their information. So that's where our role was informing accurately, hopefully, the public. But then the upside of the social media was its capacity, if you can remember, to organise an anti-violence march, of which tens of thousands of people turned up. That was done purely off social media. So we have to adapt. But I look out in the newsroom and we, we had a series of redundancies and that gave people who'd maybe fallen out of love with the media a chance to, to do something else. And I look through there, and I'm sure it's the same at your place, there's just a fantastic group of talented people um, who are just really, really keen to get out there and make a mark, and I'm sure they will. Mm. And the future for, for newspapers? The future for news, uh, newspapers is challenging. The fact is that um, there are so many different sources. I mean, I use the internet in, the, in an electronic version of newspapers. I will go to The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Herald Sun, The Age, when I want to find something where younger people will simply Google and they will get a hybrid of information. doesn't mean that, you know, my daughter um, doesn't buy newspapers, but she can, she has an interest and an understanding of world affairs and local affairs. It's a different medium and we've got to fit in to that pattern. But ultimately you need the journalist to actually set the fire before the smoke goes off. Mm. Stick around. Next, we'll see what the future holds for John Sylvester. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Celebrating Lives. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Joe Hall for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're with Great Australian Lives Celebrating the Life of Walkley Award-winning journalist John Sylvester. John, where will the future of Oh, we look to um, overseas models. We're going to have increased um, international connections. Like, crime is just another economy. So you follow multinationals, the fact that tariffs have been brought down, international, that's where we're going. We've got a massive problem with with cannabis um, crop houses, hydroponic, there's probably 1,500 in Melbourne, it's a mess. That's a whole house. Remember the last week or this week? Well, there's 1,500 of them mm. out there. Mm. And uh, you can do a, a crop in 12 weeks of 100 plants. And so that's each crop house can, can make a 1 million a year. And yet there is a very, very strong element of Canadian Vietnamese who are connected here. So we've got um, a crop house in Glen Waverley, which can be linked back to a Vietnamese Canadian in Montreal um, and the money may go through Russia. We just had uh, a report the other day that $13 million worth of property has been purchased by a Russian woman, arguably on behalf of Victorian bikies with the money going through Moscow. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, but the money is, just, the, the money is massive. So drugs, you're saying, and overseas connection. Drugs, yeah. um, cybercrime, mm. all those things. But it's it's like water; it finds its own level. If there is um, 
a demand, there will be a supply. For example, our, our, our civil courts can let us down. And if uh, you're in dispute with somebody and uh, they owe you $40,000 and you go to your solicitor and your solicitor says, look, this bloke's a notorious non-payer and he goes bankrupt. It's, only, it's a building dispute. He hasn't done the building he's supposed to do at your house. And your solicitor says, well, we can go to court and this can take a gazillion years and $30,000 and he'll never pay. So you're really frustrated and angry. Uh, there is a temptation to go to somebody who is outside the law, whether it be a bikey or some other form of person who will either buy that debt for half its price and you never hear about it again. So if it's a $40,000 debt, they may give you twenty, Or they um, say, I'll get what I can. Now the trouble is, if you hire bikies to do that and uh, the bloke says, I'm not paying, and they burn his house down or beat him, you can be liable. But again, it's just always finding an area uh, where there's a profit. A um, bit of a change of pace. You're a passionate Hawthorne supporter, I understand. Yeah, as these things, they come from father to son. And when my father came from England, he was bored witless by the fact that whenever he started a conversation, someone would go, who do you follow in the footy? And he'd say, no one. And then he'd be harangued about why it's the greatest game. So in the end, he picked Hawthorne, who hadn't won a game for about two years. And the reason was quite simple. It was a conversation stopper. It was like saying, how's your wife? Uh, she's dead. It just stopped the conversation totally. And so and when they said, oh, you follow Hawthorne, that was the end of it. But he ended up becoming passionate and I followed on. And we, well, um, and of course, I got a little bit involved in the merger, um, anti-merger thing. And the passion there with, the, uh, with Melbourne and Hawthorne just showed you how part, you know, it is just part of the, of the social fabric um, of Victoria. And it's just fantastic that I live here at the age and if we're playing a side like Geelong on a Friday night, I'll walk to the MCG and you'll see people in their colours, you know, in coffee shops and wine bars and Geelong people and Hawthorne people just chatting and the, the trams full of excited people. No need to separate people. No need to, you know, have the right police there. Uh, it is a game and um, it's a, a great thing to be involved in. Mm, it is, isn't it? I'm a passionate Collingwood supporter, but um, Hawthorne in recent years have given you value for money, that's for sure. Oh, well, yes, th thank goodness the old man picked them because <laughs> we've seen a few flags along the way. You have indeed. John, thank you so much for your time on Great Australian Lives. It's been entirely fascinating. Good on you. Thanks, Sha. Don't forget you can follow the program on Twitter at Great Oz Lives for upcoming interviews and any you may have missed. This has been Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.